This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardin.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're revisiting Kitchen Joys to bring a bit of levity to life during lockdown. The major lesson is that I'm learning <laughs> to just enjoy anything that I can taste and to taste it slowly and to just enjoy it. Reach for those jars of jam, you know, maybe bourbon, that apricot jam, and maybe some lemon juice. Shake it vigorously and strain it uh, into a cocktail glass. It'll be delightful. It's like, no, what are you cooking? What do you like to cook? And naturally, that's going to be a little bit like a niche because you are not going to be an expert at everything. Your shtick could be that you are not an expert at everything, but you want to learn. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. Esther Kim is a writer and editor of the Asian American Writers Workshop's Trans-Pacific Literary Project. Today we'll be discussing today we'll be discussing jumokbap, how this little fistful of rice fueled the South Korean Democratic Revolution and is now making a comeback, sustaining those on the COVID front lines. Welcome to the show, Esther. Thanks so much for having me, Coral. So where are you joining us today? So I'm here in Long Island, New York, um, just 40 minutes outside of the city. Did you grow up there? I did, yep. Um, mm-hmm. We made this sort of eastward migration from Bayside out to, yeah, Long Island, further mm-hmm. Long Island. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so for those who are unfamiliar with what, um, let's even just start with what the Asian American Writers Workshop is and then what the Trans-Pacific Literary Project is. Sure. Um, so the Asian American Writers Workshop is a wonderful organization, nonprofit organization that's based in Manhattan, and we host different kinds of events and fellowships for um, emerging and established Asian American writers. And one of the things that we do is we publish an online magazine known as The Margins and the Trans-Pacific Literary Project, which is a fairly recent um, part of The Margins magazine. Um, uh, Yeah, so the Trans-Pacific Literary Project is what I edit. Um, And the Trans-Pacific Literary Project is a platform for original and translated writing from East and Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. And so, um, as I'm sure this has been on your mind as well, um, I feel like there's a lot of pressure um, to, you know, maybe create more content or create more thoughtful content during the month of May, which is Asian American um, and Pacific um, um, Heritage Month. And how do you navigate that? It's a really excellent question. I just started um, with the Asian American Writers Workshop this April, actually. So it's been sort of, you know, like rapid fire, learning how to um, move events onto Zoom and different online platforms. And then in terms of like trying to create Asian American content in the middle of the pandemic, um, there's been a lot of negotiating. Obviously, sort of the politics that have been happening with anti-Asian stuff that's happening. Um, recently, uh, Jeffrey, our executive editor, just worked with PEN America to issue a statement um, with 100 different Asian American writers um, standing against anti-Asian hostility, and that was out in The Guardian. Um, so there's been different ways that we've been trying to answer to, you know, like, 
celebrating the literature of Asian American writers, as well as the current pandemic and um, harassment stuff that's happening in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So it's and a so big, actually, big project. Oh, sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, so how would you define the genre of Asian American writing? I feel like that's also kind of a, a sticky um not too clear guideline also. Yeah, definitely. I think because even Asian is a different, it's a difficult thing to define. Um, I think that what the Trans-Pacific Literary Project tries to do is highlight the Asian part. Um, So since we're publishing a lot of translations from Asian languages, we're getting insight into what a lot of creative Asian writing looks like now, um, instead of the usual sort of like I don't know, like um, snow fan and pandas and that kind of content, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, and just seeing some of the really amazing, vibrant, creative stuff that's happening in cities around Asia. Um, but yeah, I think that it is something that is hard to define, like whether it stretches from Central Asia to Oceania. Um, and I think that's something that we're constantly interrogating with the Trans-Pacific Literary Project, like who can we include more of um, who can we hear from more. Mm -hmm. Mm. And so would you say then that dividing Asian American or um, Asian literature into subgenres by generation is in fact too limiting? Uh, Sorry, too limiting? Right. Oh, too limiting. Like, um, is that in a way kind of assigning a blanket experience to a generation? And is that something you are conscious of or try to avoid or? Yeah. I think that it's always sort of like the frame that you start off with um, in order to, um, yeah, start investigating bigger questions. Because, I mean, you don't want to completely delete the Asian from Asian American and just mm-hmm. say it's all American. Um, but... Obviously, like being aware of who is included or excluded from Asian label and then also being aware that Asian includes like a really broad amount of experiences, um, Asian American, I mean. So like if you, you know, like all of the sort of stats people like to disaggregate the data. So if you look at like the experience of somebody who's grown up Cambodian American as opposed to say Taiwanese American, like that can be extremely different. So Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that because we're doing a sort of literary analysis um, at the Asian American Writers Workshop, we get to hear a lot of individual perspectives and stories. And that kind of is our effort at getting past the statistics part. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I ask because I feel like especially this year, um, there's been a lot of backlash against what um, is known as like the stinky foo genre of personal (laughs) essay, which is you know, common to a lot of first gen or second gen um, American immigrants. And I kind of took that to be a little sad or a little, I don't know, upsetting because, you know, that is true to our experience and that is true, that is worth talking about. And so how do you, I guess, how do you move from here? It's a good question. I actually had never heard of the label stinky food genre before. And then I was like, what does this mean? Like the like case against durian kind of essays? Um, yeah but then or I realized like, that yeah oh sorry I was gonna oh. ask one more or add one more mm-hmm. is that the like you know the shame over hiding my lunch or hiding myself um in that way and yeah mm. yeah I think that 
there's a general sort of push against, uh, for me, it's not like so much the stinky food essays as it is like personal essays. Like I think that people, there's a like certain ceiling that people are reaching with the kind of Mm -hmm. like introspective work that's happening in personal essay. And I think that it's really difficult to pull off well, because like you're trying to balance in an essay, like not only examining, say like feelings and intense emotional feelings about how people are responding to your stinky lunch, um, but you're also talking about the stinky lunch itself, um, which is, you know, has like a really rich food history. Um, but I think that like one example of a personal essay that I saw that I was like, this is so good. This is like a masterclass of how to do it was um, Ishe Govindar's essay about eating with her hands. Mm-hmm. So she's a South African Indian writer, food writer. Um, and in that essay, she talks about like the shame she grew up with eating with her hands since traditionally in India you just eat with your hands um and then like in South Africa um that not being accepted in university and then eventually marrying someone who's Dutch and then her husband was really into like embracing this part of her culture and then she was sort of mystified by it but then eventually comes to this like re-embracing of that heritage and there's also like a little bit of food history about how actually eating with your hands makes food taste better Hmm. um like scientifically for some reason um so that was an example where i was like this is really well done like she's able to balance these kinds of two things that are important to a good personal essay Mm -hmm. so what are our responsibilities as asian american writers um to ourselves to non-asian readers and to fellow asian readers you know not only in the tale we tell but also um i guess the intended use or the utility of our writing It's a really political question, I think. Um, I think that as Asian American writers, we have feet in two places, right? So America and then whatever country of heritage our parents or grandparents or whoever came from. Um, And then with that, we're able to talk about food um, because we have different memories of like what we eat as children. like different ways we're sitting at the kitchen table and how we are eating at the kitchen table. Um, So I think that it's important to really represent that, obviously, um, but also just to like recognize um, not just the Asian American part, but also like the Asian Asian part. Because I think that when we're in Asian America, we kind of forget that we're able to speak in English with this American accent and that gives us access to power and publications that other countries or say writers don't have that um, access to. So I think, yeah, it's just important to really pay attention to outside of the mm-hmm. yeah, outside. Yeah. This is meant to be eaten on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be back after a short break. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. 
Okay, so the um, reason we're here is actually not to talk about any of this, <laughs> but actually to talk about Dream of Pop, um, which you did research on. So can you talk about, you know, what sparked that interest in the first place, what Dream of Pop is? Um, yeah, let's just start there. Sure. Yes, this is like the meat of the, <laughs> how I got to, yeah, talk with you about, yeah, um, all this stuff. So Jumokbap is basically a Korean, like, snack, and it takes basic staples. It's rice balls, and it takes basic staples like cooked rice and salt, um, and if you want to get fancy, sesame oil, sesame seeds, and chopped seaweed, and that's mixed together in a bowl, and you shape it into a compact fist-sized ball, and that's how it's get, it gets its name. Jumok um, means fist, and pop means rice, so fist rice. Basically, I went to my mom's birthplace in South Korea. It's this city called Gwangju, and it's on the southwest side of Korea. And while I was there, I got to eat all of the really delicious food of the city. Um, I learned while I was there that there's a pretty intense regionalism within Korean Peninsula, um, between the west and the east. And the west is very proud of its food. Um, and I was also very proud of its uh, history in being part of the democratization movement in South Korea. Um, so basically, I was researching um, how South Korea converted from this dictatorship from the 1980s into a democracy. It really hasn't been that long um, that it's been a democracy. And you still see a lot of the debates and sort of polarization um, politically within the country right now. And chumokbap was kind of part of that food history slash political history. Mm -hmm. so, so how did it play a role? Yeah, so basically I learned that um, one of the key flashpoints of the democratization movement was May 18th, 1980, uh, or how Koreans remember it, which is 518. And it's the 40th anniversary of that event this year. And... Basically, during the Gwangju Uprising, um, 518, so the city of Gwangju was the center of this pro-democracy uprising, and it was a bunch of university students, um, workers who were protesting the authoritarian government at the time, and it was about a week-long siege um, that the uh, like U.S.-backed Korean forces um, placed upon the city in May 1980. And as a result of the siege, um, the official figures say that about 150 people were killed and more than 4,100 were wounded. But those are just the official figures that are provided by the military. And so it's a quite conservative estimate. There's other reports that say there's about 1,000 to 2,000 who died over the course of those weeks or course of the week. And there's no, sorry, universally accepted number. Um, and then during this protest, um, week-long protest movement, um, obviously these students who were on the front lines trying to protect their city um, and protest the regime uh, had to be fed. And so this is how Chumukbat plays a role. A lot of the marketplaces that were shut down during this time, the women just decided to band together and to just make these huge cauldrons full of rice um, and they shaped them into these little balls, uh, put some salt in. And then because they were tightly packed, they could just toss them into the oncoming 
trucks and cars that were driving by. And then these were meant to feed the front lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about you, but it feels totally eerily similar to what's going on now, um, though we don't have, you know, cauldrons of rice on the street. But, um, <laughs> you know, how how might you explain food can play such a powerful role in, you know, affecting change and unifying a community? I think that, yeah, like jumukbap is definitely a symbolic um, food for the city. Um, and it's this sort of memory of like a collective resistance. Um, and I definitely do see the parallels with what's happening in New York City with like the different charitable organizations that are trying to feed the front lines. Um, the front lines here being different from the Korean ones, say, with like the Korean ones being these like university students who are protesting. And then the um, New York City ones, say, being the hospital workers and doctors and nurses. Um, but I think that with all of this kind of like symbiotic relationship that's happening, at least in New York City, where, um, you know, like there are COVID-19 units who are receiving these donations from restaurants that have closed for the first time in, say, decades and are trying to figure out what to do with their ingredients and their labor. Um, yeah, they're able to donate this food and just feed people so that they can keep continuing to work and to protect or to like nurse people back to health during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I mean, I was definitely thinking of that, but I was also thinking of the, the anti-Black violence protests that are going on. And I almost, um, it, it takes me back to an essay you wrote about um, your boyfriend and kind of Oh my being God. <laughs> Deep dive. <laughs> talking. But being kind of prickled by Eddie Huang. And I totally, totally can relate. Um, everything he does or did, or even when I think about Rush Hour, the series, going back, it's it's really icky. And, and so can you actually, um, for listeners who did not internet stalk you, um, explain what you discuss in the essay and how um, there, there's kind of this history of Asian Americans and black like kind of being on the same page but not really sure also like props to your research oh my gosh (laughs) I completely um yeah I had written that essay back in I think it was like 2015 and that was when I was really wrestling with questions of like like the Black Lives Matter movement was like in full force at that point and um I was trying to figure out right like Asian American identity how does Asian-ness yellowness whatever you want to call it fit in into this American binary of white and black and where's yeah like our place in the discussions right now like how do we show solidarity um and I did that by looking at Eddie Huang who's the Taiwanese American chef cook business guy um who right wrote um fresh off the boat and has that whole TV show thing. And then, so Eddie Huang and Claudia Rankine, who wrote a poem um, called Citizen and was really thinking about all of the people who had died from police brutality. Um, Yeah, and so like I start out the essay by basically talking about like how this ex-boyfriend's also at this book event for Eddie Huang and then um, be him and... The one thing I left out of the essay is that he's white and mm. um, I intentionally decided to leave that out. Um, but he walked out of the event um, basically being disgusted by how Eddie Huang was trying to imitate or like appropriate blackness as part of his whole act. 
And yeah, that sort of sparked the essay. Mm -hmm. And so, so were you, did you leave the talk being surprised at your boyfriend's reaction or were you also like, yeah, that's like, that's pretty messed up. And and then kind of decided to look into that. Uh, I think I was more on the first, the first reaction. Mm -hmm. Like I was annoyed that it was him (laughs) who had to like decide, right? Like as a white liberal who gets to decide. Um, And at the same time, I was trying to figure out, like, what is okay to, yeah, like, what is okay to imitate? And how do we, if we do, or borrow from or be influenced by, if we do, how do we do it in a way that celebrates and recognizes, like, the the individual, like, the difference, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, it's mm-hmm. almost like his, your boyfriend's reaction only recognized two sides of the spectrum and did not know how to place um, the Asian American experience. And so it it felt, you know, incorrect. Yeah. And I went down this whole bunny hole where I started looking up like Afro-Asia solidarities. Mm -hmm. Like there was like, um, I think like African slash African-Americans were in Indonesia for some conference back in like the 60s or 70s. Yeah. It started a whole thing where I was, yeah, trying to figure this out. Mm -hmm. So back to Fistful of Rice. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so this is really powerful because I feel like it, it's one of the few instances where, you know, all systems worked and did okay and ultimately yielded a great result. And so um, what, what do you think this might mean for our future of food? I think that... There's a lot of stuff that's happening, right, with food right now. I've been reading all of the articles in Food and Tech Connect, the newsletter, and thinking about the supply chain of food. I think that there's a lot of hope we can take, at least in the whole story of how Chumukbap, like, just remembering the people, the women in the marketplace who banded together and were really fighting to feed the front lines. And that meant sometimes that was just, like, their children, um... And just like celebrating the fact that there are New Yorkers who are donating um, to these different organizations and there are restaurants who are suddenly becoming grocery stores or just donating food to the front lines um, as in the doctors and nurses. Um, But I think that like for the future of food, I would say just read Michael Pollan's essay Mm -hmm. in the New York Review of Books because he does talk about like the larger problems that we need to reckon with in the U.S., Mm-hmm. And which one is that? Um, the Michael Pollan essay is the most recent issue of the New York Review of Books. I think he just talks about like food supply. I can't remember the exact title, but mm-hmm. um, he just recognizes that there's the U.S. food system is basically set up for you know cheap, fast food, mm-hmm. um, which has kind of led to. Um, underpaying, say, migrant labor who are working at the crops and also has led to, say, meat processing plants. Like, I read that one meat processing plant does, like, 80% of, like, cow meat or something. Um, It just has, like, centralized things so much in the U.S. that, like, once, you know, there's a wrench in the system, then suddenly it's so clear Mm -hmm. um, why there's a shortage. Like, yeah. And so when there's things like farmers dumping milk or euthanizing chickens, like, why is that happening? And he answers those kinds of questions that mm-hmm. don't really seem apparent when you're at the grocery store. Right. 
That's a great um, listener homework thing to end on. Thank you so much for joining me today, Esther. (laughs) Thanks for having me, Cora. Meant to be Eaten is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.